Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Lord Jesus, we beseech you. We come to you. We ask you to hear our prayer. And our prayer, Lord, is that we would hear from you through your word, that as your church abides together in this place this morning, that we would abide in your word and it might change and transform us. And God, I am very aware that the text that we are looking at this morning warns against preaching the gospel and putting our confidence in the way we use words, the way we say them, the way we wordsmith them, our ability to persuade. But to always put our confidence in the word of the gospel, in the word of the cross. And so, Holy Spirit, we would ask this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We pray this to Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people together say, amen. Do that work among us. I invite you to turn again to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I believe if you're using one of the Bibles, if you need a Bible, there are some back there, and it's on page 952 in that Bible. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 17 this morning, I want you to consider what do your car and your spine have in common? Well, it's not that they're old or that they're rusty, though that may be true. Both function best when they are in, in proper alignment. And both can cause serious problems. I already got an amen, and I even <laughs> only, that's great. Both can cause serious problems if they're out of alignment. And both need a skilled technician or physician to, to realign them. And in both cases, whether it's the tech or the doctor, they use a standard, a, a true north of sorts to, to align and realign both. Now, in our text this morning, that is precisely what the Apostle Paul is wanting to do for the believers in the church of Corinth. You see, these believers had, had gotten themselves out of alignment. They'd gotten themselves sideways, or what my dad might call kittywampus. And Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes them a doctor's prescription for, for realignment. And this morning, Dr. Paul's diagnosis and his prescription are for us as well. Because we are susceptible to the same kind of, of misalignment that the Corinthians were guilty of. And because Jesus, our true physician, who abides with his church, because he cares so deeply for his people, his blood-bought bride, the same cure, the very same cure is available for our realignment. 
If you look at our text this morning, you'll note that verse 10, the beginning of the section that we're going to look at, begins with these words, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has, has begun in the sections before greeting these believers. He's identified them as God's new covenant people, this, this wonderful status that, that all of God's people have. He says, Corinthians, you have that too. It's real. God has done a work of his saving grace among you. And then Paul affirms that work of saving grace in verses 4 through 9. And, and now Paul begins to turn a corner. And he begins to address an overarching problem within their fellowship. Note how he begins again, verse 10, saying, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly enough, Bible scholars kind of debate what Paul's attitude or his stance is in this first little section here, this first phrase or two. Is he, on the one hand, making a very emotional, compassionate, heartfelt appeal to them? I urge you, I exhort you, it could be translated, I beg you, I plead you, with you. Or, on the other hand, is he exercising his apostolic uh, uh, prerogative in authority, saying, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you, you must do this. Which one is it? Well, I think any parent in this room knows the answer. The answer is yes. <laughs> it's both and. It's, it's all of the above. We parents know that when we see something out of alignment with our children, yes, we have the authority and we feel the responsibility of the authority that we have to come in and, and to urge them and to exhort them. This needs to change. There, there needs to be an adjustment here. But there are kids. And we love them, so it's coming from a heart filled with compassion. And given the amount of time that Paul had spent with this particular group of people, this church, no doubt he is, as an apostle sent by Jesus himself, he feels the responsibility and he's exercising his authority, but he is doing it with great compassion, with much of his heart overflowing in the words of our text this morning. Well, let's keep reading. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is this. Each of you says, I follow Paul, and, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in or into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus, Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. We thank God for his holy word this morning. 
What was going on in Corinth? How did, how did this church get, get so out of alignment? Well, let me recall to your memory how this church came about. Paul had come to the city of Corinth on his second missionary journey. And though he had seen the gospel take root in a number of places in the Roman world, Paul had certainly taken his hits as well on this second missionary journey. It began with, with, a, with a split between him and his partner Barnabas, and Silas instead had come along with him, and they had picked up Timothy in Derby. No doubt that hurt to, to watch his partner, his, his brother of encouragement, go a different way. Paul was jailed in Philippi. Yes, the gospel took root, but he found himself in a jail, and he had to leave town. Then he goes on to Thessalonica, and he preaches the gospel, and a mob chases him out. And so he goes to Berea, and there the people are willing to listen to God's word, yet the mob follows him and chases him out of that city as well. And then Paul came to Athens, and he had this amazing gospel opportunity of, of preaching the word in the Areopagus, in the marketplace of ideas there in that part of the world. And while a few responded positively to the gospel with faith, the overall response was that of confusion and, and downright ridicule. And so Paul, when he came to the city of Corinth, after leaving Athens, he came there in weakness. And he says as much in sec, the book of 2 Corinthians. But, Paul says in that text, that God used his human weakness to cause Paul to rely on God's supernatural strength. Paul relates that a few verses down, if you skip down from our text in 1 Corinthians to chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul <clears throat> remembers how he came to the Corinthian uh, believers. They weren't believers yet, but this is how he came to them. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing, to, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of Wisdom, a key word, by the way, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Don't necessarily think about wisdom like Solomon in the Proverbs, but think about a human wisdom, a human sort of man-centered persuasion when you see that word wisdom used that way in this book. <clears throat> I didn't come to you with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might rest not on the wisdom of human beings, but in the power of God. <clears throat> and that is exactly what happened. By God's power, the power of his Holy Spirit, people in the city of Corinth were saved. Now, this ancient city has been described as a combination of, of Times Square in New York, the commercial district, the financial district, combined with Las Vegas, and the red light section of Amsterdam. And among that people, among that culture, God saved people. 
He miraculously transformed them through the preaching of the gospel as they trusted in Jesus and became a new creation in Christ. And a church was established there. And Paul spent about a year and a half establishing that church, those new believers in the word. All the while, he was supporting himself financially through his trade as a tent maker. And remember, he did that along with Priscilla and Aquila, also believers who were tent makers. And eventually, after being in Corinth and spending about a year and a half there, Paul returned to his home base, the church in Antioch. And after being there for a little while, he sent out, set out again to proclaim the gospel. And he settled in the city of Ephesus and spent almost three years there grounding that young congregation in the scriptures. While Paul was in Ephesus, he received some disturbing news about the dynamics within the church at Corinth. And we see that in verse 11 of our text this morning. The news came by way of Chloe's people. And our text says that they reported. Uh, the, the, the word there means they made clear. Perhaps it was something that Paul had already suspected, but when he talked to Chloe's people, it was clear that the situation in Corinth wasn't good. We don't know exactly who's, who Chloe's people are. Um, we don't know necessarily that she was from Corinth, or even if she was a believer. She was probably a woman of some financial means. I mean, she had people, right? Do you have people? I don't have people. Sometimes you meet people who have people. They're like, have your people talk to my people. But I'm like, I don't have any people. What should I do? <laughs> Chloe had people. She was probably a businesswoman who had business associates who moved between Corinth and Ephesus. And probably some of those who were from Corinth had become believers. And they knew Paul. And while he was in Ephesus, they reported to him, and it became clear that the situation back in Corinth, where Paul had last been maybe a, a, perhaps two or three years prior, that situation was not good. There, were, there was quarreling, it says in verse 11, or, or discords among God's people. There were divisions, verse 10 says. Seemingly, according to verse 10, everyone in Corinth, it seemed like all the believers was self-identifying with their favorite preacher. And, and these, these cliques, these groups, they didn't appear to be substantively based. They weren't based on substance. That's what I should have said. <laughs> Rather, they were based on personality. I consider myself Pauline. Apollo is my homeboy. Peter is my guy. Well, I am of Christ. That's sort of the group that's sort of above everything, right? There's always that group. Well, I am of Christ. No creed but Christ, said another group. Now, among the Greco-Roman culture within which the Corinthians lived, uh, people had placed a high value on public speaking, the, the art of persuasion, verbal eloquence, Professional orators would, would travel around from city to city entertaining their fans. And within this climate, the Corinthian Christians began to make judgments about these itinerant preachers who had come through, whether it was Paul or whether it was Apollos or whether it was Cephas, who was Peter. They made judgments about them and then they began to attach themselves to their favorite preacher, the one that they liked the best. Do you see how these 
Corinthians were guilty of bringing their own value system or the value system of the world around them into the church. You see, Corinth was a dynamic, cosmopolitan Roman city. It was proud of its status as a Roman colony. The city had previously been destroyed in about 140 uh, B.C., and then it had been rebuilt in about 100 years later, around 40 B.C. And so it, it had this sort of energy that, that it had now risen up from the ashes and was exceeding its former glory. It was a thriving commercial center, strategically located on, on this isthmus, this, this four-and-a-half-mile strip between the Aegean Sea on one side and the Adriatic Sea on the other, and they would literally pick up the boats and transport them through Corinth to save time. And so it was a commercial center, and it was, it was an athletic center. Uh, the uh, uh, Peloponnesian Games, which rivaled the Olympic Games, were played there. And as we mentioned before, it was Sin City. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And so the Corinthian vibe was full of energy. It was full of optimism. It was individualistic. It valued self-expression and, and self-identification. And what better way to express oneself than to identify with a public speaker who most reflects my preferences? You see, he really speaks to me. And the Corinthian vibe was competitive. They were winners. They were winners and they wanted to get on board with winners. And what better way to feed your competitive nature than to declare to everybody that your guy is the best and everyone who identifies with him is the best. And the result we see in verse 10 is a lack of harmony. It could be translated discord. Didn't know exactly what discord was, so I emailed Matt this week. And he let me know that discord is probably what happens when I sing in church. Um, that discord is musical notes that don't go together. It, it's, the, it's basically the opposite of harmony. I'm, I'm always impressed with people who can harmonize. I have no clue how to do it, but, but their voices blend together. They work together and produce something that is greater than the sum uh, total of the parts. And the opposite of that was happening among God's people in Corinth. They weren't on the same page. The body of Christ was disjointed and out of alignment. And as a result, the culture around them was getting a distorted picture of Jesus' body, of what his people are like, really of who Jesus is through his people. And so Paul gets to the heart of the issue right away with this church. He wastes no time in, in zeroing in on it. And he does so by asking them three questions in verse 13 that are meant to, to shock them, to wake them up, to make them realize how seriously they've gone astray. Look, look at what he says. It, ha, it ought to have shock value for us. Is Christ divided? Has Christ been apportioned and divvied up? And he wants the Corinthians to say, oh, no. No, that would be horrible. 
has Paul been crucified for you? And he wants the believers there to respond, oh my goodness, Paul crucified. It's appalling to even think about that. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Oh no. No, for sure not. And so the issue that Paul wants to raise by pointing to, to Christ being unified. Christ is not portioned. He's unified, the answer should be. Paul was not crucified. Jesus was crucified for us. You weren't baptized into the name of, the, of Paul. You were baptized into the name of Jesus, into the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And so the, so the issue, Paul is saying, is it's, it's not about personalities. Forget about who your favorite teacher is, who speaks to you. And it's not about whether you like me. Paul could care less that there was a group that was sort of his fan club. And it's certainly not about your right to express your individuality. Paul says, brothers and sisters, my dear brothers and sisters, this is a gospel issue. This is an issue that has to do with the reality of the gospel embraced and believed. This is an issue of the gospel being lived out in your culture. You have turned the gospel, the good news of Jesus, into a competition and a popularity contest, into a platform for your individual self-expression. You are shaping the gospel by your personal preferences rather than being shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, do you see how relevant this passage is for the church today, for us? Do we not see the very same thing in our culture? A gospel of popularity, a gospel of, of personalities, we run after the next Christian personality and, and attach ourselves to them and download their app and buy their books. A gospel of cultural relevance. Hey, how cool can we make ourselves out to be? Can we be as cool as the rest of the world? Maybe if we're really cool, then the, then the world will like us and they'll, they'll come and want to be with us and they'll, they'll think about trusting our Jesus. Or the gospel of personal achievement. I know we're probably pretty aware of the prosperity gospel. And if we see some of the characters who promote that, we're probably pretty quick to recognize that sort of pure prosperity gospel, that, that, that God owes us something if we love him and if we'll obey him. But I sometimes think there's a little bit more subtle kind of prosperity gospel in the church more of a gospel of achievement. We take verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and we put it on our locker room. Healthy things grow. So if our church isn't growing, guess it's not healthy. All of these other gospels that are not the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we've imported from our culture around us. And so Paul gives the Corinthians, and the Paul gives us this morning an authoritative warning and a heartfelt 
appeal. Do, do not empty the gospel of its power. Notice how he, he said, guys, what you're doing is, is you're taking the cross and you're turning it upside down and you're emptying of, of its power. You're, you're draining the fuel out of the machine. You're, you're taking the battery pack out. Don't, don't do that. Because the power of the gospel, the source of the power of the gospel to transform people is the power of the cross of Jesus. And you don't want to set that aside. You don't want to empty that out. Friends, that is the message of God's word this morning, that the source of the gospel's power to transform is resident in the power of the cross. That's where the gospel gets its power, from the power of the cross. You see, the, 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 the gospel, it begins with paradise lost, Genesis. And it ends with paradise regained, Revelation. And the cross of Jesus Christ is right in the middle. And the beginning of the gospel is that, that God, for his glory, made people. He made a world for them to enjoy. And he desired to be their king and to live in a relationship with them. But human beings have, have rebelled against God. They've, they've trashed his name. They, they've sought to be a God to themselves. We've created our own gods in our own gospels. But rather than God simply turning his back and letting the world literally go to a hell in a handbasket, God made a promise that he would send a redeemer. And that one day, all things would be restored that there would be a new heaven and a new earth and that God would live with his people in relationship with them, God's people living in his, in his place under his rule. And so how do we get from paradise lost to paradise regained to a restored heaven and earth? It is the cross of Jesus Christ which falls in the very center point of history. That Jesus came as God's one and only son. That he lived the perfectly righteous life that none of us have been able to do. And that he died being nailed to a cross. That his blood flowed. And that God in his mercy and in his justice received Jesus' payment to be sufficient for the sins of the world. And that all who look to Jesus would have life in his name. And God put his stamp of approval on Jesus' death by raising him to life on the third day and letting everyone know that, that you too can have eternal life. Jesus was the first indestructible life, the first fruits of the life to come. And you can have that too by repenting of your sin and trusting in him. And I urge you, friend, this morning, I make my appeal to you that if you have not come to Jesus in repentance and faith, this story that I have just told, that is the gospel story. And God calls you to be part of that story by turning to his son Jesus, the crucified Christ. And he will not turn you away and you will be his child forever if you look to him in faith asking him to forgive your sin 
and to be your Savior. The source of the gospel's power to transform is the power of the cross. The word of the cross not only says something. They're all about words in Corinth. The word of the cross not only says something, but the word of the cross, the gospel of the cross, does something. I love what Leon Morris, faithful biblical expositor of generations ago, said. The faithful preaching of the cross, and I would add the faithful teaching of the cross, and the faithful counseling in light of the cross, and the faithful meditating on the cross in our small groups. All of that leads people to put their trust, not in any human device, but in what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, when he begins that great book, that great exposition of the gospel in verse 16 of chapter 1, saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and then the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Where was God's righteousness revealed? It was revealed at the cross. At the cross, Jesus took on our sin. The righteousness of God was upheld. But at the same time, the grace of God was made known so that all could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ who looked to him in faith. And so the message of the cross is not just information, but it is a power for transformation. It is the means that God uses to awaken us of our, of, of our need and to see Christ as the provision for our need and to turn to him in repentance and faith. And so, friends, the message of the cross is for us this morning. I want to talk about three ways this message is for us. What are the implications for us of the message of the cross? The fact that the source of the gospel's power is the power of the cross. In other words, how does the cross realign us? Three, three things I want to talk about this morning. First of all, the cross realigns us by clarifying our identity. Jesus' cross realigns us by clarifying our identity. The cross reminds us that who we are is a result of whose we are. Does that sound familiar? That was the message, our first message in 1 Corinthians a couple of weeks ago. And I don't know that we're going to get beyond that reality in some ways as we go through 1 Corinthians. That's, that's one of the overarching messages, that, that who we are, our identity is a result of whose we are, of belonging to God through Jesus, through his finished work on the cross. Paul uses this illustration of baptism. It's kind of interesting to hear him talk about baptism uh, here in this passage. He doesn't want to make too big a deal of it. He's like, I'm trying to remember who I baptized. Uh, I think I only baptized these two guys. And then it's almost like the guy who's, who's writing down stuff for Paul is like, no, no, you baptized the household of Stephanus. Oh, yeah, wrote right down that I baptized the household of Stephanus, but I'm getting old. Beyond that, I don't remember. If I didn't come to baptize. 
And so on the one hand, Paul is downplaying the, the activity of baptism, the ceremony of baptism on the one hand. But on the other hand, I think this passage and other passages that talk about baptism uphold the, the importance of the reality that is symbolized by the activity of baptism of going into the water and coming back, back up. And that is that you are baptized into the name of Jesus. Why, the reason why that statement from Paul should have been so hideous, were you baptized into my name, is because it should just, it should just be gross to even think that a human being would be baptized into another human being. When Jesus came that we might be baptized, not just symbolically, but truly become part of him, have union with him. And the reality of baptism is the rea teaches us the reality of our identity. You've been baptized into Jesus Christ. You are now one with him. You are united to him and united to all who are united to him. And so our identification that that's clarified by the word of the cross is, is a group identification, that we are the body of Christ. We are all baptized into Jesus through faith, which then our water baptism symbolizes and communicates to the world. And so, brothers and sisters, we, we are the blood-brought children of God. Not just I am a blood-bought child of God, but we together. And so the word of the cross helps us to understand and clarify not only our individual, individual identity in Christ, but also our corporate, our group, our church identity in Christ. Secondly, the cross realigns us by calling us to unity. The message of the cross realigns us, the reality of the cross realigns us by calling us to unity. And this, this flows right from our identity being a, a corporate identity. You see, there's no room for partisanship in the body of Christ. Jesus can't be divvied up, Paul says. He, he can't be parceled out. A little bit of Jesus there, a little bit of Jesus for that group, a little bit of Jesus for the group, that, for the church down the street, a little bit of Jesus for this group. No. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, the scriptures say. Christianity, following Jesus, is inescapably corporate. It is a team sport to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean complete uniformity or sameness. There's room for, you know, Cubs fans and Sox fans in the body of Christ. We don't all have to dress the same. We don't all have to look the same. We don't all have to educate our kids in the same way. There's lots of room for diversity within the body of Christ. And we don't all have to worship in the same building on Sunday morning. There are other true bodies, true local churches. And we don't even all have to believe exactly the same thing when it comes to the non-essentials of the faith. 
But when it comes to the fundamentals, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in one universal Catholic church. I believe that Jesus will return again. These are the fundamentals of the faith, friends. And everyone who is truly a Christian, who can truly say that Jesus is Lord, Friends, that that is a miracle of God's grace. If you meet another Christian this week, that is an amazing thing. You both stand there face to face. That person is your brother or your sister, and you stand there all by the grace of God, all because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And so when we consider the cross, it calls us to unity, with all Christians, in all places. And finally, the cross realigns us by centering our hope. The cross realigns us by centering our hope. Do I have two buys on there? Oh, good. You, you caught, whoever edited the slides caught that. Nice job. My notes have buy on there twice. The cross realigns us by centering our hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and on his righteousness, one for us at the cross. And so we need to renounce all the false gospels. We need to renounce all the gospel substitutes, all the places where where we are tempted to put our hope. Now, probably as good Bible-believing Christians, we're not tempted to put all our hope in other things. But, but we, tend, we can have a tendency to do the Jesus plus thing, right? To say, I need Jesus, but maybe this will, I can, I'll put some of my hope here. I need Jesus, but I'm going to find some meaning over here. And typically it's good things. Maybe see if you recognize some of these false gospels, these Jesus and gospels. There's the gospel of doctrinal precision. Then there's the gospel of cultural relevance. There's the false gospel of political influence. Oh, if we could just get enough Christians into office, it'd be so great. There's the gospel of social transformation. We can create heaven on earth. There's the gospel of the idealized Christian family. There's the gospel of Christian schooling. There's the gospel of homeschooling. There's the gospel of kids' sports. There's the gospel of organic food and cloth diapers. That's not one I'm real tempted toward, but it's out there. There are the gospels of Christian entertainment and Christian fads, or the gospel of separation from the world. Now, I don't know that I've named anything that is in and of itself bad, but do we put our hope in those things? Or are those things a byproduct of having trusted in Jesus Christ and putting all our hope in him? Friends, as Christians, we we never move beyond the cross, meaning we continually recognize our need for God's grace purchased by Jesus through his death. That is the theology of the cross, of Jesus' finished work. Listen to what theologian Gerhard Ford says about 
being a theologian of the cross, and we all ought to be theologians of the cross. He says, in short, a theologian of the cross sees the cross as the end where we die to our sin with Christ, and we are raised a new creation in Christ. The work is truly finished, as Christ promised, and there is no moving on from the cross. The cross is also our, the center of our hope, not just for ourselves, but for others. And this ought to give us great, great confidence in sharing the gospel, in evangelism, in sending people to Canada, in sending people to tribes who haven't heard. This ought to give us great, great confidence in our gospel conversations. We should be encouraged that the power of the gospel to transform doesn't depend on our words. Have you been in that conversation with somebody who doesn't know the Lord and, and you, you almost get uptight. It's like, I just I want to say the right thing. And I, I, as if it all depended on us. And I think God's word ought to bring us great comfort and great hope this morning. That if we point people to Jesus, if we point people to the crucified Jesus in those conversations, that God will be faithful, that, that saying it exactly the right way. Sometimes I see sort of gospel methods or programs that are almost like a, um, a sales script. Like if they object this way, then say this. And if they object that way, then say this. As if we can go down exactly the right path and sort of slam dunk somebody into the kingdom of heaven. Friends, our, our confidence is helpful as tools like that might be. Our confidence is not in that. Our confidence is that when, when people see the crucified Jesus, they will say, I am undone. You mean there's a Savior who died for me? Who laid down his life so that I could be forgiven? So that I could know communion with my Creator for all of eternity? That's amazing. Friends, that is the word of the cross. That is where the power of the cross is for us. And so we don't ever move beyond it. We don't ever move beyond it in our preaching. We don't ever move beyond it in our Sunday school teaching. We don't ever move beyond it in our small groups. We don't ever move beyond it in our own personal devotions. We keep coming back to Jesus. Crucified, risen, ascended, reigning on high for us. That is where the source of the power is. And friends, God will use that in our midst for his glory, and he will give us great joy in that reality. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, give us, forgive us, we pray, for putting our hope intentionally or unintentionally, in, in anything less than Jesus Christ, in his shed blood, in the gift of his righteousness. Lord, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for truths from your scripture that are clarifying, that adjust us and realign us. Father, I pray that we would all be, by your Holy Spirit, 
realigned and brought back into the, the real center of who Jesus is for us. Lord, every time we see a cross in this building or in a church building that we go past or on a wall somewhere, hanging around somebody's neck, Lord, may we be reminded of your great love and of your great power to transform us and to bring all things under the authority of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.